I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Horse Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm talking to Kay Patterson, who's the owner of Medicay Training. We're talking about first aid. What should you do if you get stuck in the middle of nowhere and you or your friend gets hurt? And I'm also talking to Dee Pollard about laminitis. It's something that we've heard about, but we don't actually know much about it. What is laminitis? That's coming up on Horse Hour. Welcome back to another episode of Horse Hour. Today I'm speaking to Kay Patterson. She owns Medicaid First Aid, um, which I presume is a first aid training centre. Is that right, Kay? Yes, that's right. First aid training uh, company offering uh, qualifications to horse riders. Brilliant, because that is what we need, because we get horses, and if you're anything like me, you get a horse, you don't actually have a clue what you're doing. So (laughs) it's not until something happens, it's almost like we need to be a little bit more proactive. That's right, completely right, yes. Um, I often come across sort of riding establishment or riders, similar to yourself, who um, get a horse, don't really know what they're doing, and they are more susceptible to having accidents or incidents in that situation. Um, so we basically felt that we could dispel myths, mm-hmm. we could educate and improve safety and at the same time give people qualifications to make them compliant if they have their own yard or are an instructor. So yeah. It's a brilliant idea and do you know what I think everybody should have to go on these courses before they're even allowed to have a horse. <laughs> yeah I mean a lot of the instructors out there who um, have gone through various equestrian disciplines um, before they can qualify or become registered they have to have first aid qualifications which Mm -hmm. is fantastic Um, but yeah for the average you know sort of hobby rider um, happy hacker it's not a requirement certainly but often people contact us who've seen an incident or been witness to one or been involved in one and they wish they'd known what to do Mm. so it is very much for sort of forearm prepares you really um, we try our best to try and get to you before the accident actually happens so do you deal uh, with human first aid or do you deal with equine first aid mostly human um, that's my speciality um, I was a paramedic previously um, worked in the ambulance service for 14 years oh, wow. uh, and a horse rider myself. So uh, when I left the ambulance service, it was a natural thing to put the two passions together. 
Um, and you have to agree that horse riders are a, a special breed. We very much. <laughs> we only want to deal with horsey other people. Yes. Uh, and uh, we only want people on our yards who are comfortable around horses. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so when I left the ambulance service and I started offering first aid courses in just offices or nurseries or schools, I just didn't get. I didn't get the enthusiasm. I just didn't enjoy it so when I suddenly started offering the courses at riding establishments and I get tours around everyone's yard I get to sort of offer rides I was like I found me place you know it's very much uh get, doing a serious subject but at the same time um I'm very passionate um, and very enthusiastic about like-minded people mm-hmm. uh, so that's where this sort of theory came really we do do horse first aid but we work in combination with um, a company called XL Equine, um, which is a branch of um, horse vets, equine vets, all around the country. And if we get people that want a combination of horse and rider, we can work in collaboration to go to the yard to offer that over oh, a day brilliant, brilliant. or whatever. But yeah, most people when we first started thought we were horse first aid and they get really disappointed. <laughs> and they go, oh, so we've got to look after people, not horses. <laughs> no, I'm not so sure I want to do it. <laughs> So, yeah, we are predominantly human first aid, definitely. It's one to definitely have because we do hear of accidents a lot. Yeah. And if we don't know how to deal with those situations, whether it's it could be the most basic. But, you know, give us a real common thing that you hear a lot, a common accident. Most commonly, it's people, um, a horse will spook. Uh, I am a hack mm-hmm. um, or it's a, an inexperienced horse that um, shies at something um, quite frequently in the first instance and they'll fall off. A rider will possibly get knocked out um, through head injuries. Mm. Um, if she's not knocked out, she suffers shock. So she'll be slightly sort of agitated, a bit confused, feeling a bit sick. Uh, and the tendency is for people to just quickly put them back on. Mm. Uh, because I think certainly when I was brought up, you were encouraged to get back on to restore your confidence. So therefore that uh, you didn't lose it and you were able to continue riding positively. Yes. <laughs> uh, but sometimes, certainly with the uh, the majority of falls that we deal with or you know, if we talk about, riders probably shouldn't be put back on straight away. Uh, so yeah, his head injuries are a major concern. Shoulder, get lots of collarbone fractures, mm. um, lots of sort of um, not necessarily major blood loss uh, necessarily, but riders feeling shocked either yeah. emotionally as witness their horse taking off the home gallop towards the nearest motorway, uh, or. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or seeing, you know, having a broken bone is very distressing and it puts them into shock that way. So, mm. yeah, you see very frequent trends, I have to say. Uh, I remember, I remember breaking, I remember falling off and breaking my arm and I was doing three jumps. I was only young, three jumps in a row. First yeah. one, fine. Second one, okay. Third one, no chance. The horse jumps, like, it was like four feet off the ground and I was tiny and had this little pony. And I think I kind of, it was a mixture of, I lost my balance, she lost her balance, and I aborted ship. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of threw myself up, got a broken arm, instructor said, right, on you get, get back on. <laughs> Did it all over again with a broken arm. Yeah, Because yeah, at the time yeah. we didn't realise, I mean, this was going back years, about 15 years ago, but at the time I didn't know it was a broken arm. But like you said, the confidence thing, you've, you've yeah. got to get back on. But I found a... Um, uh, uh, my confidence out hacking is shocking no confidence at all I'm like 
I don't want to be too far from home just in case yeah. anything happens you know I need to feel safe but we're working on that and the best <laughs> the best thing that I found to help is I've got a little app on my phone that says track my hack yes yes Have you heard very of this? good yeah, yeah, we often talk about and discuss it on the courses. I love it because yeah. at the beginning I um, press go, like, okay, I'm going on my hack and it follows me in a little GPS and it, and it works in the background so it doesn't take up too much battery. And then if I fall off, if mm. the phone is lying still for longer than five minutes, it sends a text message to my buddy. So that could be uh, my other half. It could be a family member, whoever I want at that time. And it sends a text saying, <laughs> Amy could be in danger. Mm. Um, she might have fallen off. This is her location, but it's a longitude latitude. Yeah. Longitude latitude uh, thing. And then it uh, says this is her number. So they can text me to see if I'm okay and I'm alive. If not, then they can send the emergency services, which is brilliant. So it's called Track My Hack. It was free <laughs> on, on the iTunes, which is great if yeah. your other half answers the phone. <laughs> so, Technology, yeah, I love yeah. it. So if he's never, never with his phone and never answering it, I could be lying there for days and he wouldn't realise. <laughs> oh, I've heard it. All the stories very similar to that. Yeah, it, 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 these apps are fantastic. And uh, we discuss various sort of safety measures that people can take to minimise uh, the panic or minimise the um, disruption and distress uh, that can be caused to riders. Similar system to yourself, not necessarily technology-based, was we encourage people to put like um, a tag on that is called a medical data carrier on the side of the helmet yeah brilliant and idea. it's got all their info in this hat and it also tells people don't remove my hat because that's also something else that we talk a lot about is removing riders helmets mm. should you be removing a rider's helmet if she's unconscious on the floor definitely not uh, but people the first reaction is will take someone's helmet off thinking that's the best thing for them to do uh, and can cause worsening problems to your neck and all sorts. So, yeah, a lot of discussions on the courses, exactly what you just said, preventative measures, safety precautions you can take will hopefully limit further damage, won't it? Oh, absolutely. Two, I've had two very close friends that have had severe accidents. Mm. One of them ended up being helicoptered off on a stretcher. She broke her back. Um, and the paramedics were unbelievable. They were so mm. good. And luckily she was with somebody else. And she's now fine. You know, she can. she's riding again and jumping yeah. again. And you just think, oh, my gosh, it's incredible. And the <laughs> other friend was knocked out unconscious. And luckily she can't remember a thing because she's young. Right. And um, she doesn't really have the emotional trauma of the accident because she can't remember it. And she's mm. now completely fine. But she has that tag. Like you were saying, there's a tag on the bridle of the horse. Yeah. And, and she's got it on her boots. But I like the fact that you put it on, on the helmet. I think that's a really good idea. And it just says her location, t- uh, her name, telephone, emergency telephone contact. Because the horse ran off in one direction. Yeah, yeah. And she was laying there. And nobody knew where she was or where she was supposed to be or anything. Mm-hmm. It is a worry, isn't it? It is a worry. I mean, more riders are sort of going out in pairs or in groups now because they're concerned about uh, the incidents of being on their own, which is great mm. to see. And with the roads being so busy and things and the incidents we've seen recently, it's good call to go out with somebody else. Um, but you've got to then be reassured that the person that you're with knows how to look after you. Yes. If you fell off. You know, do you do you run and go and get that horse, the loose horse that's taking itself back over the motorway bridge home, or do you tend to your friend first? All these sorts of questions we sort of kind of thrash out as much as possible on the courses, so people have a structure in their approach to a fallen rider. 
So what do you think? What do you think? Do you think a horse has um, a little bit more sense to not run across that that road? I know they're scared, (laughs) but... What, what how how does it work what do you think well if the horse has gone for home don't try and catch it to bring it back to the scenario as much as we love our horses and how expensive our horses and how precious they are they're a member of our family mm. at this moment in time we don't actually know what state the rider is in mm. yeah so the rider could be potentially quickly checked and again this is taught on the courses before you then have to make a phone call for someone to retrieve the horse or you can then feel confident enough to go and fetch it because you know your friend's okay yeah what we don't want you to do is run after the horse while your friend's in a dire straits potentially um you know lying on their backs with a tongue potentially causing obstruction to their airway you go and get the horse because you think that's the right thing to do and you've now exacerbated the situation because you brought that danger back to the scenario Mm. so yeah it is a momentary sort of look at the rider check her over in a protocol that we teach you which enables you then feel confident that you can retrieve the horse to its rightful place but most horses yeah they're, they're sensible in some respects they will go and panic won't they and they'll take themselves towards home but yeah running into high t- volume traffic it's probably unlikely and that's your worst ever possible scenario i appreciate but let's you know they are sensible in some respects aren't they they're not going to do that if they can avoid it mm. and, and quite often there's generally some nice good samaritans around <laughs> that will catch your horse yes um, we used to live at the end of a uh, lucky lives at the end of a forest and i have caught lots of horses <laughs> that yeah. have lost riders oh, no. and they we, we put them in the garden and they sat there and then uh, and then we go off looking for the rider because yeah. that that is your priority is yeah. making sure that the rider is okay as well because they could goodness knows what could happen to them yeah. so okay what are your thoughts on um these the vests the uh, body protectors yeah again we discuss it all on the course we literally bring along all the um body protectors you, you know all different brands uh we bring air jackets to the course and we set them off so we are very kind of uh keen to get people to wear them mm. uh, there's been lots of discussions about do they worsen injuries uh, are they actually worth wearing having the experience that i've got and the people that i've seen in the accidents i've seen they are definitely a vital piece of kit Mm. Yeah, so a body protector like a um, like a, um, a race safe vest is not nec- not there to protect your spine. It's to protect your vital organs. So it's there to protect your heart and your lungs. Oh, wow. Yeah, so things like air jackets in combination with a race vest or a, a, you know a body protector will then hope to protect your spine as well. Yeah, mm. so it's not. People always think, well, your body protector is just there for your spine. No, it's it's vital organs. It's stopping your lungs and your heart getting damaged. Um, so we've got, you know, we have got a person at the end of the day that's um, potentially uh, treatable uh, with injuries. What about the air jackets then? Are they there to protect your spine? Yes, they are. Yeah, they are. And, and again, not foolproof completely because they obviously have incidences where the actual uh, canisters aren't actually um, inflating the jackets. Um, but they're there with hope to increase the chances of protecting your spine. Don't tell me uh, that because I've just bought one. No, they are. <laughs> they are, but make sure you screw the canister in right. Oh, I asked for it to come ready-made. <laughs> yeah, you're fine then. Just don't always do that. Get the people that are in the know to put it in for you. Yeah. And, and, and they are appearing more and more now. They're not that good on their own. You're encouraged to wear them with a body protector underneath. Oh, really? Because what I found with the body protector was that it was restricting my movement. 
So when when Blackjack was having his funny five minutes, which he's been having lately as a youngster, and he decided to buck and rear, I'm quite stiff. But in the air jacket, he's bucking and rearing, and I can kind of move with him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you've got... And that's the thing. When they came out, it was fantastic. The thought that it was this flexible sort of gillet that you could wear. Mm. You know, now they make them into jackets. If you've got your young horse and he rears up and falls backwards with you on, it's not going to inflate. It will stay as it is. So, in effect, you've got nothing on you. You can't guarantee that you're going to come away far enough from your horse in order for it to go off. So that's a sort of a, a juggling act, really. You take that chance, you know, you like to think that it, that's the worst scenario. It's never going to happen. But, yeah, I, I would always try and encourage people to wear the two or the minimum one of the um, body protectors. Does it hurt when these air jackets inflate? No. Not at all. Uh, they do shock people sometimes, especially if you've not had one actually go off on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the shock. Um, but no, I've had them, you know, and I experiment with them on the courses. And uh, yeah, to reassure people, they don't hurt. People say, oh my gosh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Well, you are breathing because you, you're making a fuss about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. well, but they don't wind you because the ones that inflate inwards, they used to wind you, didn't they? Well, yeah, I mean, all the different manufacturers of the jackets um, have sort of uh, different concepts of whether they go in, they go out, but they're all very similar. I mean, I'm sponsored by Treehouse Sporting Colours, which provide all the jackets for me to take around all the courses to enable riders to get a feel for how they go off Mm. and be reassured that they're there for for protection uh, on the way down and with the impact whatever you hit on the way down, um, and the, the, the actual compressed sensation that you get it is minimal. Amazing. People think that they go, they go inwards. Mm. It doesn't. Uh, it very much goes out, but because it goes out, it makes you feel like, oh, my gosh, it's so tight. Mm. And we get people, certainly last year I was covering BE events as a paramedic, and you try and stop a rider from flinging off the air jacket because it's gone off and they want to get straight back on. Yeah, so they're not bothered. They haven't felt compressed in any way, shape or form. Yeah. You know, it really is um, going off for riders quite frequently and it really shouldn't put people off getting one because of that feeling, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, do it. Okay, so now let's look at um, some main things that we need to be thinking about when we're riding in terms of our safety. So, um, safety, always tell people at the yard where you're going. Mm-hmm. This is all textbook stuff, but we do need reminding. Um, always carry a mobile phone. Yeah. yeah. Always a good plan. Always have on your person or on your horse location of their home address or some contact details of some description. Uh, so if you did become unwell or fall off, then like you re- previously said, that someone can be notified. Mm-hmm. Take a first aid kit. That sounds a daft, daft thing to say, but uh, most people think about if my horse got injured whilst I was out, I'd put a bit of vet wrap around it and, you know, I'd be able to take a hoof pick and deal with that. But it's actually if, if the people are injured, we have to be able to tend to them as well. Mm. If you're riding through a gate and you get your leg stuck and it rips a big part of your leg yeah. and it's bleeding profusely, there's nothing more panic-stricken than somebody ripping off clothing to try and put it round a wound, which then isn't the most sterile in mm. our environment. 
So yeah, it sounds really daft, even if you just take yeah, a bandage. That's not daft at all because I, I, on my first ever hack out with blackjack, um, mm-hmm. my foot got stuck impaled on the gate post. How that happened, I, no, I've got no idea yeah. how it happened. I tried to open it one way. I think I flung my foot over, and the next thing I knew, it, it was literally on top, and I had to lift my foot off the nail yeah. to be able to uh, to move. So it, it can happen so quickly and so easily, and you don't even realise that it's it's happening you can get these packs can't you that you can connect to your saddle they're called saddle bags yeah you can have saddle bags but believe it or not bum bags are coming back into fashion they're not i don't believe you <laughs> they are never coming back they do they do <laughs> pony go pony, when you go to pony club camps when you go to some any uh, um, cross-country event now you'll see an instructor walking around with a bum bag with first aid kit in mm-hmm. and so I, when we go out to like trekking centers or uh, riding establishments that um venture quite far afield yeah you can buy uh, off Medicaid's website uh, <laughs> a bum bag which contains basic kit uh, that you can wear whilst riding. Which you can also put your hoop pick in it, you know, your ten pence piece for your phone call. You put anything like that in it. <laughs> it is a really good idea, and I searched high and low for bum bags last year. And did you? Um, yeah. And I, I managed to find one on a market in Spain. That was the only place I could get one because I didn't know about your website then. Yes, and do you know how many people ripped it out of me for having this bum bag? But because I've got allergies, yeah. um, I have to carry my EpiPen right. and I have to carry my antihistamine with me wherever I go. Brilliant. So, so, when, you, so when you ride out, do your friends know how to use your EpiPen? No. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be good to know if you're doing well for yourself to administer it then they can administer it can't they yeah, but yeah that's, that's another true. consideration and again on the courses we get EpiPens out we crash them out we make sure people are happy and confident to use them with someone like yourself turning up to ride mm. we'd know we could we could give it you quite happily without feeling anxious Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't want. That's weird. I wouldn't want to scare my rider friends any more than I already do. So they already know that I'm completely insane and nervous, and I'm like, watch out for the log and watch out for this. I'm like, and and, and if I pass out, can you just stab me with this injection at the same time? Yeah, it could save your life. It could. No, you're completely right. You are completely right. But we don't. I think we do take so many safety precautions, and we wear our hats. We wear our body protectors. We have our high vis, and but we don't think about those extra little things like you're right, money. I mean, yeah. I mean, there aren't any te- telephone boxes around anymore, <laughs> so a ten p piece wouldn't be able to do much. But you know, taking your mobile phone and like plasters and things, I guess. Yeah, and did you know in the phone boxes now though are defibrillators? You're kidding. No, do you know how to use a defibrillator in a phone box? No. Well, that's it. So again, Medicaid courses, first aid. If you live in a village, you ride around that village and there's a defibrillator, it might be worth in, you know, finding out how to access it and how to use it. Don't need specific training off us, um, but people like to have the confidence by having familiarity, can't yeah. say it, uh, with a piece of kit that's in that phone box. I think I think the hardest thing is that we, we tend to ignore bad situations might happening because um, I'm one for going, what if this happens and what if that happens and I can be prepared, but... We also like to ignore that something yeah. really serious might happen. When actually, if we just prepared for it, yeah. then it, it won't be so bad at the time. You know, yeah. we could actually, you could actually save somebody's life. 
Yeah, prior preparation prevents panic. Um, some yards, um, and big yards to talk about, race yards, hunt yards, pony club centres, you know, have to have first aid training to actually be workable. You know, for a workplace, if they have five members of staff, including apprentices, they have to have it. Mm. So having um, a first aid training company that is so specific who's able to go through accident reporting with them, how it should be done, and and the most common injured riders. And having people come to a a rider's yard is what we're all about. You know, when when you contact the average first aid training company, say, yeah, come to my yard. I've only got a tack room. It's full of saddles. Uh, (laughs) Is there any way you can qualify me in first aid? And for us... We love the challenge, you know, of being able to come and do exactly that. Whereas you get the average, again, there's millions of millions of first aid training companies out there. Average person turns up in a suit. Mm-hmm. They get really anxious if they come near a horse. No, we're very disappointed if you don't get a tour around the yard. <laughs> That's all the horses. That's how different it is. <laughs> you also understand that, like you said, the main issues and the main injuries that you get because you're a rider yourself and you've yeah. you've, you've been a paramedic and you've seen it all. Yeah. So that will help because it's it's more of it's, it's way more specialised. I'd yeah. much rather have you come to our yard and yeah. say, right, okay, if you get kicked this is what you'll expect you'll probably get a big bruise it'll be a little bit of internal bleeding but nothing to worry about stick some ice on it and you'll be fine yeah (laughs) if i say that to if we get a first aid that comes in that knows nothing they'd be like right lie down we've got to get you in the abc position recovery (laughs) because you might have broken something you know it's like they don't understand and i'm not i you know i'm not being mean i'm not taking the mickey out of uh, uh, first aid courses at all because they are all worth their gold absolutely and um, because it's better to have a little bit of knowledge yes. than than to have nothing at all which at the moment is what we've got um but <laughs> to have more specialized is, is definitely definitely worthwhile sorry Stay with me one moment Go on. hey Lennis, come on i've got a four month old puppy for the day <laughs> i've got my th- i've had to give my three dogs chews to keep them quiet <laughs> i've just um i've signed up to borrow my doggy oh have you (laughs) he's gorgeous it's um we can't have a dog yet we're not allowed one where i live and um (laughs) so i just borrow other people's for the day when they go to work i love it nice because i suppose people yeah struggle to find you know some doggy care don't they that's really good he's cute um yeah so uh what's your website address uh it's www.medi-initialk.co.uk brilliant we're going to put that on uh, on twitter as well on horse hour so people can get through to you if they want any advice want any uh-huh. help or yeah. want to come on a training course and you travel so you're based in worcester but you travel all over the country giving these courses yeah well not just myself we've got a team that do um all horse riders um all very experienced trainers um, so, yeah, we've covered courses in Ireland, Jersey, all over the UK. Um, there's nowhere that we won't go. Uh, we, like I say, we, we don't expect you to come to us. We come to you um, for a group of up to 12 riders as a maximum. Mm-hmm. Um, we What's do, the minimum? No minimum. Oh, amazing. So, no minimum. It's a set group booking. So, for example, if you've got two people, two members of staff that you need to be qualified, you can either get people from outside to come on the course or just have it for two. Obviously, the price is more expensive if you just have the two because mm-hmm. it is a set group booking daily rate that we charge. And again, all the prices are on the website. Um, but again, it depends how flexible. People don't want to leave the yard routine. They don't want to go to a, a venue um, between nine and five 
Um, we can do weekends, we can do evenings, just to enable people to get the qualification that they might need, whether it's an emergency first aid at work, which is a one-day course, yeah, so that's mm-hmm. like a level two qualification. Some UKCC coaches can um, are required to have that level. Majority of yards are expected to have a level three qualification, yeah. um, which is a three-day course. It used to be four-day, now it's three. Um, and that's incorporated 21 hours of teaching. Wow. But it can be done within 10 weeks. You don't need to do it three consecutive days, which, again, yards find unachievable. Mm. So we can come to you one Monday and two weeks later another Monday. Um, and, again, the numbers are the same. It's a maximum of 12. If you do that qualification, that will also make you eligible for any instructor registers, um, which you need um, to have a three-day course. Again, the UKCC Level 2 and Level 3 and lot of the BRC uh, and the Pony Club, they want you to have um, a Level 3 qualification to do your role as an instructor. That's brilliant, Kate. And, and the courses, when you've done them, they, do they last a year? Do you have to repeat them every year? You don't have to. Um, it's not mandatory. They last three years. Oh, brilliant. So you do three years before you then requalify. If you've done the one-day course, you take you do the one-day course in three years' time. Mm-hmm. If you did the three-day course, you if you kept it in date, so within the three years, you can do a two-day requalification. Brilliant. So it's even less thereafter. As long as you keep it in date, you would only have to see us every three years for two days. And again, that can be spread out. And by then, there'll be a new air jack out or there'll be a new safety <laughs> thing that we'll need advice on anyway. So yeah, and, well, first aid, yeah, first aid changes all the time. I mean, we had the Research Council guidelines came out in October 2015 and, and things have really drastically simplified, but they have changed. Mm. So if you're training your first aid training, you'll be surprised how many people say, well, I'm, I, I trained so five years ago. It's massively different all the time because now a lot of the training is research led. You know, so we're basing it on research. What you do to a rider so many years ago will be different now. Mm. So it definitely is something that's worth doing to keep yourself current, keep yourself up to date. And again, if you're covering Pony Club events, if you're an instructor, it, you can't just tick on by without any first aid training until the accident happens. You need to get current and be proved to be um, capable of taking responsibility for your clients. Absolutely. So we can follow you on Twitter, Kay. What's your Twitter yes. handle? Medicare underscore first aid. Number one ST aid. Yes, number one ST <laughs> aid. And on Facebook as well. Um, that comes under Medicare equine specific first aid training. Uh, we put lots of current protocols on there and we're constantly showing people falling off, which people seem to like. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've con- all been there. <laughs> I know. And we're constantly sharing information about safety improvements. Uh, we say we're working with lots of equine vets at the moment and the farriers. So keeping, you know, keeping in touch with us on all their social media platforms. So we'll make you aware of any courses coming up near anyone that's not got their own yard who needs to fit into the other course. Thank you so much, Kay. Oh, that's all right. Thank you for your time. No worries. We'll speak to you soon, Kay. Thank you. So on to my next guest, Dee Pollard. Now, she works at Animal Health Trust in Newmarket, and she's an epidemiologist. That's a difficult one to say. Dee, what's that? It is quite a tongue twister. Um, So basically, epidemiology is the study of disease. We want to look at um, how frequently disease occurs and also why it occurs. So then we can look at patterns of disease and then try to prevent it. Oh, that would be great. And what sort of diseases have you been looking at so far? 
So I'm focusing on equine laminitis at the moment. Oh, this is a nightmare because as equestrians, even if you haven't got a horse, everyone's heard of laminitis, but we don't actually know what it is. Well, it's not as straightforward as just saying it's a disease and you get it because of this. Um, It's a very complex disease and there are a lot of different factors that interact to make it develop. Okay, let's start with the myths then, because when I first heard of the word laminitis, I thought that you got laminitis by having a fat horse. Um, by if a horse ate too much, then it would uh, it would have too much weight and it would get colic and it would it would pass away. And and that was the only explanation I ever had. But isn't it more intricate than that? It's definitely more intricate than that. And I'm certainly um, being overweight or rapidly putting on weight has been found to be a risk factor for laminitis. But you don't necessarily have to be overweight. And actually what we find is that a lot of the cases are associated with metabolic or hormonal disturbances. Oh, really? So it's the hormones. So does that mean that it's more predominantly in mares than it is um, geldings? Um, some studies have found that, um, not within the UK, but not definitively. So it's more kind of when you get diseases like equine Cushing's disease, which is a problem with hormone regulation because you have a benign tumor on the pituitary gland. Oh, that's what that's what Cushing's is. Yes, I never understood. So, where, where's the pituitary gland? So it's found at the base of the hypothalamus, which is sort of close to the brain. And the pituitary gland usually releases hormones, um, which regulate different things within the body. And when you have this tumor, you get overproduction of certain stress hormones. So that's why when you test for equine Cushing's, you look for this hormone, which is abbreviated ACTH. Um, and it's one of the stress hormones. And if you get elevated levels of that hormone, it's usually a sign that there is a problem and that um, the horse could have equine Cushing's. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's another disease altogether, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> what we're finding with laminitis, though, is that these rays in hormones could mean that a horse is more prone to having laminitis. Yes, that's right. And then you have a whole nother metabolic problem. So you have equine metabolic syndrome. Now here, this is characterized by usually, most of the time, being overweight, having recurrent episodes of laminitis, and also having something called insulin resistance. So this is where the hormone insulin starts playing a part. So what does the horse produce too much insulin itself? Yeah, so insulin resistance means that the body doesn't respond to the normal levels of insulin. Mm -hmm. And so then the horse starts producing more and more to try and get a response. So you get a lot of um, high levels of insulin circulating in the blood, and that somehow seems to trigger this cascade of laminitis. It's quite complicated, isn't it? There's lots. Yeah, (laughs) so you almost need kind of a separate podcast for equine metabolic syndrome, for (laughs) equine pushings, and then bring it all together. It's a complicated minefield for us, and that's where we're hoping that you'll you'll help us. Because if we can break it down to, if you could explain to us exactly what is laminitis. So those are the, the possible reasons to get it. But if a horse has been diagnosed with laminitis, what does it have? Basically, what laminitis is, I mean, if you look at the definition of the actual word laminitis, it means inflammation of the lamina. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the word lamina, so I prefer to use lamella. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So basically, the lamella is this layer within the horse's foot that helps to suspend the bones of the foot within the hoof capsule. Mm. And it's a very specialized layer. It's one part of it is sensitive. So it means that it has blood vessels and nerves. And that's the part that's closest to the bone. And that very nicely and tightly connects to the second part, which is closer to the hoof capsule. And that's called the insensitive lamella layer. And is that the section at the bottom of the hoof? That goes all the way down to the sole. And if so, if you um, look at the bottom of your horse's foot and you see the white line, that is what goes all the way up. And that's where the lamella layer is found inside the hoof. Oh, okay. So uh, and sometimes in laminitis cases, you'll see when there's been a lot of damage within the hoof that the actual white line becomes very stretched and there might even be blood in it or it just looks very sore because that's actually laminitis affects that lamella layer and you get changes in its structure. Okay, so if you're looking at your horse and you see that the white line has become a little bit wider, you don't necessarily need to panic, do you? Because that white line does change naturally with the horse. Yes, I mean, certainly sometimes you'll get some few changes in it, but usually in laminitis, it'll be quite a marked difference and you will especially see it when the horse has been freshly trimmed and your farrier might be able to then pick this up because you'll definitely see I mean sometimes the white line is a little bit distorted and you can get if the horse isn't shod you can get some little stones or gunk caught in it but in laminitis cases usually it'll be quite a sort of distinct widening and you'll also know because the horse will be very sore usually. Oh so they can't really walk. Because I've seen pictures of horses with laminitis before and they tend to lean backwards so that their front legs are stretched in front of them and their back legs are, they're leaning on their back leg. But it's almost like they don't want to put their feet down. Yes, so that's kind of what's called the typical laminitic stance, but it all depends on how many of the legs are affected. So if it's only the front legs that are affected, the horse will try to take his weight off them. So they will kind of put them in front and lean back onto their heels because the lamella layer, although it goes all the way around the hoof, for some reason, sort of it's usually the front by the toe where you'll get the worst damage. 
So they'll just try to take all their weight off their toes and onto their heels. But you might see a different stance if, for example, the back feet are affected or if it's only one foot. Oh, gosh. So in laminitic, is laminitic a word, Dee? Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in laminitic horses, is it true that the bone can come down and, and kind of drop further towards the sole of the hoof? Yes, yeah, so that's what happens in your very serious um, chronic cases. What actually happens is that, remember we spoke about how the two layers of the lamella are very tightly connected. Mm. And what actually happens in these very serious cases is that connection can almost break apart. And what happens then, the bone inside the foot is no longer being supported. And obviously the whole weight of the horse is placed on just that one hoof. And what you get is that the bone inside the hoof starts moving. And obviously, because of gravity, it'll either sink down or it will start rotating downwards. Blimey. So that's really serious then, because yes. I, I mean, how can you fix a problem like that? If the bone has started to drop, how do you, can you get the bone back up to its original position? You can, but it takes a lot of sort of really careful management, working together with your farrier and your vet, you know, taking x-rays, having a look at where the bone is, trying to realign the foot, trying to support the foot so that you can get it back into alignment and, and get it get the lamella layer to start growing healthy again. So laminitis is really, really serious. And we need to be, you know, my comment in the beginning of I thought it was just, you know, let's dispel the myth. It's just about having a fat horse. It's not about having an overweight horse if you get it it can be so so severe and that the horse can be in chronic pain exactly so how do we before we go on preventative methods how can we spot the signs of a laminitic horse right so they've done a study before and they've looked at sort of the range of clinical signs that you can find in a number of laminitic cases and unfortunately there isn't always one sign that's present in every case and this makes it quite tricky then to diagnose because there's no kind of test where you can say oh yeah that horse definitely has laminitis unless for example you have the very serious cases where you take x-rays and you can see that there's actually been movement of the bone in the foot well most of us the last thing we want to do is have to call out the vet and get an x-ray done if we just think he might you know he might have a problem rather than you know we can actually tell ourselves if he's got a problem yeah, so the kind of milder sign, well, what what we would call the acute phase of laminitis. So this is before you get any serious permanent changes within the foot. Yes. You'll usually get signs like um, the horse might just appear really restless. They could shift the weight from one foot to the other. There could be a little bit of leg trembling. The feet, um, the hooves and the coronet band could be warm to the touch. And I don't know if you know that there's a blood vessel that runs at the back of the fetlock, and that's called the digital artery. Mm -hmm. And usually, uh, if you try to feel the pulse there, it's usually quite hard to feel it in a healthy foot. But um, often in a laminitic foot, because there's been all sorts of circulatory changes and there could be inflammation, that pulse will almost it's called a bounding pulse. You'll really be able to feel it. That's interesting. Is that how? How do you feel that pulse? Um, it's quite hard to explain it <laughs> without kind of visual aids. But you kind of have to run your hand down the back of the horse's leg. To there's two places you can feel it: either at the back of the fetlock, mm -hmm. or kind of um, more towards the pastern. And it's just something that you have to really practice and get, to get a whole hang of it. 
where to find this pulse because as i say in a in a in a normal healthy foot it's quite faint so if um, we can feel it will it be will it be a, ru- a racing pulse um Will um, it be hotter? It no, it won't. It won't increase in speed. It'll, it'll still be kind of going the same speed, but you'll, it'll really, you'll be able to feel it'll go boom, boom, rather than just kind of a faint little boom, boom. Oh, okay. So it'll have, it'll have more force to it then. Yes, that's it. That's kind of the the bounding pulse. Okay, so those are the first signs then. So he's light on his feet. Um, he doesn't necessarily want to put his foot down. If we can feel a pulse, it, the overweight issue, I, I know I keep going on about this, but is that one of the main factors? Well, we certainly know that being overweight and sort of having these sort of fat pads across the body, it does contribute to insulin resistance and therefore then could make the horse more prone to laminitis. Um, it has been found to be a risk factor. So certainly you don't want to risk that. So we always advise, you know, even if the horse has never had laminitis or doesn't appear to be susceptible, we always want to keep them in the right kind of weight and condition. Coming into winter, or when we go into winter, we always like, if, if horses live out, we like to have our horses that have a little bit of extra padding on them, you know, a little bit of extra fat to keep them warm throughout the winter. Yeah. But this I think, could be putting them at risk. Well, I think what happens, I know horses don't really live in nature anymore, but if you kind of look at the natural rhythm, it's been suggested that horses are meant to lose weight over winter. So they're meant to come out of winter looking maybe not as filled out as we would want them to be. Mm. And then obviously in spring and there's going to be, you know, warmer weather, nicer grazing, they'll sort of pick up condition again and then drop off again from the autumn into the winter and so on. What happens if we sort of think, oh, you know, he might really be feeling cold. I'll chuck on another two rugs and then I'll feed him extra. And usually what happens in winter, you maybe not don't have enough time. You're not doing as much exercise with them as you'd like. And then they come out of winter with some excess weight, go into spring and summer, putting more weight on. And then you kind of end up with this um, additive effect of weight gain. And you don't have that natural cycle of kind of losing a bit, gaining a bit, which then evens out throughout the year, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but that's hilarious, Dee, because if you had a horse like I've got, he just needs to look at food. He doesn't, he doesn't, he needs to look at grass and he's put on weight. He is the best doer <laughs> I've ever seen. The poor thing has not been fed all winter because he's just, <laughs> he's just so big. And he wasn't big going into winter. I've definitely been very tight with, with what he's been eating. Yeah. Um, but he seems to have coped really, really well with this winter. He hasn't needed any food and he's still far too big to be going into the summer so what can I do to get his weight down he's, he's not having extra feed he's just having the grass in the field and there isn't yeah. even a lot of grass <laughs> yeah it's I think some some of our horse I mean I've got a hufflinger and he is a really good doer as well so some of these horses can just almost survive on nothing and I think that's where the whole theory of this thrifty gene comes in so a lot of the native breeds and ponies, we think that there is some evidence that they are designed to live on really sparse, low-quality grazing and forage. And then, of course, we come along and we put them into nice green paddocks (laughs) and we section them off into little areas. 
and they don't move around as much. I mean, it's all it's all part of domestication and looking after them. But I think maybe that's where some of the these metabolic problems have come up, and that these really thrifty breeds are then kind of being overwhelmed almost with so many so much goodness yeah yeah so are you, um, did you feed your halflinger over over the winter his staple is hay and that's what he gets pretty much because we don't have very good grazing but other than that he just gets a balancer you see blackjack hasn't even had that i mean he, <laughs> he doesn't have a stable he lives out yeah and there really isn't a lot of grass because the weather's been so horrific so my worry is he's big enough that he doesn't need a feed, but I worry then that he's not getting the nutrients he needs to keep his body healthy. So it's this constant battle. And then, and then I have friends that, you know, they've got horses that need loads of feed. They're being fed twice a day. They need loads of rugs to keep them warm because they can't, they're different breeds, obviously, but they can't keep the weight on. So when you're talking about laminitic horses, if you've got a horse that's a good doer and you don't really need to feed him much because he's got more than enough, clearly, um, if I was to section him off, he wouldn't have nearly enough room to walk around. No. Um, so the actual prevention methods are quite, it's quite tough, isn't it? Yeah, because you don't want to go as far as starving a horse. I mean, that's that's not good. They're, they're meant to be trickle feeders. They're meant to kind of trickle feed in over 16 hours a day. Mm. And with trickle feed, is that like hay or grass? If you've got a good doer, you probably want to kind of go for the low quality. And in low quality, I don't mean like the dusty, moldy hay, but <laughs> the, <laughs> um, the hay that's not as nutritious. But I think then you go into the whole world of kind of hay analysis. And they have looked at studies where you can soak hay to reduce its nutrients. But then you also might be leaching away some of like the protein and the things that the horse would need while you're getting rid of the sugars Mm. but I think it's I mean feeding is a difficult thing and I think probably less is more in my opinion when you have a good doer so it's okay to not feed your horse then you know if he's got grass um and he's living out it's okay to not feed him yeah I mean over the summer when we had access to some grazing that we don't normally normally have access to I just stopped feeding his feed. And I think it's just trying to be able to adapt to your situation. You don't always have to feed the same amount. I know we say, you know, cha- make all changes to feed gradually and slowly, but I think you have to balance it against what you're doing with your horse and how well they're doing. So if you can always cut things out or reduce the amount. Mm. That's really interesting because another issue that we have is that we put our human heads and we have this guilt, you know, as humans of what we should be doing with our horses and what everybody else is doing. And if everyone else is doing it, then we should be doing it. So the whole of winter, I've, I've been thinking, well, I should be feeding him because everybody else is feeding. But if I feed him anymore, he's going to he's going to just eat himself to death. He's just going <laughs> to balloon out. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting other people's perspectives. So they're saying, "Oh, but you're not feeding him." I'm saying, "Well, no. Have you have you seen the size? Of, I mean, he's not obese, D, so he's, yeah. he's not. But you know, I'm making him sound obese. But if I was to feed him, he 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 definitely would be obese. So it's also being strong enough to know your own horse and know what's right for your horse and make the right decisions for your horse. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter what other people are doing. That's exactly it. I think it's quite interesting that and good when people recognize, for example, you're recognizing that your horse is, you know, a little bit bigger than you want him to be. And I think that's an important thing is 
is people's perspectives of what is good condition and what and what is actually the right condition. Mm. So as long as you recognize that and you try to to make some changes, you know, that's always a good thing. Okay, so what can we do then? Do good doers tend to be laminitic horses or can you get a thoroughbred that can be prone to laminitis? Um, I think that's one thing that we've found is that a laminitis can affect any horse or pony. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you can get from thoroughbreds to Arabs to you know, native ponies. And that's something important to remember because I know we spoke about sort of the metabolic problems and there are some breeds that are more predisposed to having perhaps insulin resistance, like I spoke about the natives having this thrifty genes and they could be more at risk. But it's also dependent on very much on the individual and that's where you get the kind of the genetic component. So almost like in people, if your parents have diabetes, both of them, then you're much more likely to have it as well. So there's this whole kind of genetic aspect to it, but then a lot a lot of the part is played by the environment that the animal is in. Is it worth us getting our horses tested for this gene to see if they could be, you know, like, for example, diabetes? Is it worth doing that? Yeah, I don't think there actually is any tests like that, unfortunately. Oh, oh no. <laughs> So a lot of the problems come in is that um, horses will be tested for these metabolic um, disorders after they've had laminitis. Mm. So almost laminitis will be the like, oh gosh, you know, my horse has had laminitis, something's wrong. I'm going to test them for Cushing's and I'm going to test their insulin to see if they're insulin resistant. So we want to almost take it back and find some way of identifying which of these horses are at risk, how we can actually reduce the risk for all animals so that we don't get to that point where they get laminitis. So can we have an insulin test? Like, can I phone the vet tomorrow and say, can you come and test my horse to see if he's fighting his insulin? Is it fighting his insulin? Um, insulin resistance. If he's insulin resistant. Yeah. So there is a, there's a couple of different tests available, and we always sort of tell um, owners to speak to their vets. There is just kind of a test where you just test the insulin level, as it is. Mm-hmm. And there's other tests where you can do what's called a glucose challenge. So you can fast the animal, then you can give them a glucose feed, and then you test the blood before and after, and you can see if there is kind of an insulin resistance animals, there'll, there'll be a really big peak in insulin following this glucose meal. So there's kind of, there's the dynamic testing, and there's just like, just testing the, the standing insulin. But this isn't something that you do at home. This is something that the vet will do for you. Yeah, yes. And unfortunately, there's no kind of, you know, that with diabetes, you can do kind of the pinprick test. And yes, um, unfortunately, there's nothing like that available as yet. Well, that's what we need you to invent, Dee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think it'll take a good many years and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Much more research till we're there. So you're working on these tests at the moment then. Um, you're doing a research project with the Animal Health Trust and um, who are amazing, I have to say, because I've experienced them. Blackjack went up to the Animal Health Trust and Professor Sue Dyson looked after him. 
Oh, brilliant! Yes. And she was awesome. So she specialized. She's written books and things. I think she That's she specializes in in lame horses. Yes. And you know something that took us six months to try and work out what was wrong with him. It took her three days, and she found out straight away. So um, she was brilliant, and everyone there really looked after us, and we looked after Blackjack. Anyway, kind of digressing here. So um, you're doing some testing, some uh, research with the Animal Health Trust on laminitis, and yes. and what what is that involving then because can we help with that oh yes i mean anyone that owns a horse or pony in britain can help with this research because basically what we're doing is we're asking for owners to sort of log information about their horses online so if you go to www.careaboutlaminitis.org.uk you can sign up and enroll any number of horses you own into the study and basically what we're looking to do is find out um the proportion of horses and ponies that are affected by laminitis mm-hmm. in Britain so we know how common it is and also then we want to look at um factors that might contribute to laminitis either developing or not developing we're quite interested in these factors that we have the potential to change so a lot of these kind of management related factors okay so we're taking out the the genes and we're taking out the metabolic issues and just going for the management like how much you feed them how much they exercise per day Well, we're looking at everything. So we're collecting information. When owners sign up, there there will be a detailed baseline questionnaire that they complete, and that goes basically from information about the horse, their age, breed, body condition, estimated weight, down to how much you're feeding, um how much exercise you're doing, the turnout regime, stabling, hoof care, and finally also we have a section about any health concerns or any um problems the horse might have at the time. Oh, okay. So it's very detailed. We really want to look at all the possible factors, but we're very interested in the ones that we have the potential to do something about. And you only have to log on once a month, don't you? Once a month you fill in your details, a bit like a diary. It is kind of yeah, like a diary. And then how long are you doing this for? We've been doing this since August 2014 we launched the study so we've already been going for over a year and we are collecting info until the end of 2016 so it's another year to go so it's not too late to sign up now <laughs> no definitely and 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 I take it you need as many people as possible because the more horses that you have registered where you can monitor their progress and, and monitor how they're doing um it means that all that data will then help you get a definitive hopefully a definitive answer as to what causes or how we can pre- really prevent laminitis Yes, that's it. I mean, the more animals we have taking part, and the more owners that get involved, the more confident we can be in the results that we find. And it's quite important to try and involve as diverse a population of horses and ponies as possible. So, even if a horse has never had laminitis, we're interested in getting their information because we want to know, try and find out why haven't they had it? What is different between them and a horse that has had it? Does worming make a difference in laminitis day? Well, that's one of the things that we are definitely looking at. So, kind the um how often you worm, um what wormers you've used. And that's all easy really easy to update as well. So, while 
we would like people to do monthly updates, but they can be a bit less frequent. It could be every second or every third month in the lease because that'll just kind of help us track what changes. So if you take worming as an example, you might, if you worm two or three times a year, we'll be able to pick up all those times that you have wormed. And then we can see if that has any effect on whether um, the horse develops laminitis or not. A lady called Dr. Wiley, she did a study, didn't she? She's already done a study on laminitis. Yes, yeah, so she's one of my supervisors um, in this project. Okay. Didn't she find out that other factors such as transport in the previous week and the feeding of additional supplements, they were associated with a reduced risk of laminitis? Yes, she actually identified a number of factors, both risk factors, which increase the risk and then those two factors were found to almost be protective so animals that were transported in the previous week were less likely to have laminitis than animals that weren't Mm. so we couldn't really explain this one because we well we assumed that horses that were transported more frequently would perhaps have an increased risk because they they might be undergoing more stress and you know kind of if you're going long distances they're a bit more stationary Mm. but then at the same time it could be because the protective factor could come in because these are your kind of fit horses that are going out and doing a lot of activity and are perhaps less likely to be overweight or to have a problem which like metabolic problem or have had laminitis previously, which would then prevent them from being ridden or taking part in athletic work. And then the feeding of supplements. That's the one that confuses me because if you have a, a horse that you can't feed, then you're not really giving him the supplements or the nutrients that he needs. Yes, so this was just a quite a simple yes-no question. So it was only, do you feed supplements? Uh, Yes-no. Mm. And there was a slight association between answering yes to the question and and there being a reduced risk of laminitis. So this is something we want to look into further. We know that there's a number of supplements out there that claim to prevent laminitis and to do all sorts of magical things. Mm. But we kind of want to look at, well, okay, if we break it down, if we look at exactly what supplements people are feeding, and does this then still remain a significant finding but are those are those nutrients companies not setting themselves up for failure because if it's if we don't actually know what causes laminitis how can they say that their feed supplement will reduce or will prevent laminitis i don't know (laughs) i don't know i'd be really mad if i bought that supplement and then my horse got laminitis we're saying well it's not what it says on the tin i think yeah i think they have to word it quite carefully because as far as I'm aware, there is no evidence that any one supplement can prevent or cure laminitis. I mean, there is no cure for laminitis, unfortunately. Once a horse has had it, you just have to be really careful with your ongoing management. And especially if they've had those permanent changes, like in chronic laminitis, then that foot is then forever compromised. Mm. I had a, I've got a friend that's um, she's just had a, a, a horse that's had laminitis and it was so sad. She loves this little pony, and pony was really poorly, but he is recovering, so he is getting through it and through oh, l- a lot of time and a lot of care and a lot of farrier's visits to first so that he can wear special shoes. Yeah, and with that one, I don't think he's got the gene. 
don't quote me on that but I don't think he's got the gene I think it was that he was doing a, a, not a lot of exercise um because he's a little pony he can only be ridden by children so yeah. he's probably being ridden once every four weeks and they did overfeed him because they used to give him loads of treats and he had lots of sugar and and it was a bit much so she's been really strong now and has had to cut back on the feed and cut back on the treats you know even things like a little sugary treat every day yeah. If he'd get one in the morning, and then if she went down at lunchtime to see him, he'd get one at lunchtime, and then he'd get another one in the evening, and then just before she left, because he'd been a good boy and he was in his stable, and you know those little those little things that we as humans want, we think that they're going to love us, and we want to yeah. treat them, isn't necessarily a treat. We could be harming them. It's definitely something that can build up over time. I mean, you can have a horse that perhaps is genetically susceptible to having metabolic problems and kind of weight gain and. I mean, if you look at people, we all have different predispositions on where we put weight on and <laughs> yes. how how much weight we put on and how easy it is to get it off. We just need to look. We're good doers, Dee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we just I know. need to look at chocolate. <laughs> Um, so I think it's the same with horses, but you can almost kind of say, well, you can take a horse that perhaps doesn't have this predisposition, but if you continue to feed them sort of overfeed and high sugar feed and little exercise, you can create that situation where insulin resistance can develop over time. So I think it's quite important then that we kind of dispel this myth it's only little fat ponies that get laminitis well that's what's really fascinating is that it is all the horses and do you have horses that are laminitic that aren't fat that are maybe skinny yes and certainly you can get that case with um you can get a horse that is in sort of not overweight condition and even sort of very trim and fit and they can still have insulin resistance so i think that is probably not as common as being overweight and having insulin resistance, but it does happen. So I think it's just always better to be safe because you, you actually want to prevent that whole episode in the first place. Yeah, because it's painful for them. They don't want to go through that either, do they? No, it's definitely. And because, I mean, as people, if we have a broken foot or we have pain in our feet, we can just lie down and put our feet up. Mm. But with horses, I mean, they're on their feet pretty much most of the time. They might lie down for a few hours to sleep, but most of them will even sleep standing up. So if there's any kind of pain or, or soreness in their feet, it's really debilitating for them. So Dee, can we summarize then? What are the signs to look out for? Um, kind of what, say, the acute phase signs of laminitis would be just... Um, restlessness, um, shifting weight from foot to foot, any heat in the hoof or the coronet band. The feet might be painful to the touch if you kind of press around the frog, although this probably might be something more that your farrier or trimmer might notice. Mm -hmm. There'll be lameness and they can be, depending on which feet are affected, they can be lame in one or more of the feet. Um, sometimes you'll see quite short and stiff, almost kind of pottery steps. Oh, little baby steps. Yes, and they might be more pronounced on harder ground. So they might walk out okay on grass, but as soon as you go onto tarmac or a bit of, of, of stones or something uneven, you'll see that they'll kind of really start pottering about. Um, one of the signs that's quite common and is um, often used by vets is if the horse has difficulty making a tight turn. Oh, okay. So that's quite um, a good sign to look out for. And then once the disease kind of progresses further, you can get almost kind of reluctance or refusal to move forward because they're in quite a lot of pain. 
And then in extreme cases, they might even lie down just to try and get to relieve some pressure from their feet. And then, so if we've seen uh, a few of those signs, what's the first thing we should do? Well, I'd always, <laughs> I'd always kind of assume the worst until proven otherwise, um, especially if you know that the horse has a history of laminitis or has any of the um, metabolic disorders. Um, the first thing would probably be to bring them in and just try and keep them as kind of still as possible because the the less they move around, the less chance there is that they will kind of do further damage just from moving around. Mm. And then call your vet. Okay, well, that's been amazing. Thank you so much, Dee. No problem. Thank you. It is a, I feel like I now understand laminitis. Before it was a bit of a minefield. Um, oh, but... you're probably a bit more confused now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do have some really um, nice information on the Care About Laminitis website. Uh, we've got a section that's um, called Learn About Laminitis. So there's some information there and also, yeah, just taking part in the study, I think. It will help us understand as well, because I think, you know, it's difficult for us. We can't, we can't prevent anything if we don't know what we're looking for. Well, that's it. And I think because we're collecting such a wide array of information, it'll be so useful just generally looking at the, the health and the management of horses in Britain. We'll have all that information in hand, as well as finding out more about laminitis. So we've only got to wait a year then, only a year, and then you can tell us your findings? Yes. And you can then come back on, Dee, and say, right, now I know categorically this is yeah. how you need to prevent laminitis it's amazing and um, so we can head to www.careaboutlaminitis.org.uk find out some more information there and take part in your study as well i'll be logging on in a moment um, and we need as many people to take part so that we get a really good broad range of the spectrum of the equestrian industry in the uk and uh, d can we can we follow you um can we follow you on twitter can we follow the animal health trust um, yes, you can follow the Animal Health Trust. I don't have an official study Twitter page, but I am on Twitter, DN Pollard. And the study has a Facebook page. So if you search for the care study, um, you should find us on Facebook. So what's the Twitter for the Animal Health Trust? It's A-H-T official. At A-H-T official. Yes, that's right. That's brilliant. Okay, thank you so much, Dee. Oh, can I just mention, um, yeah. the study is funded by World Horse Welfare. Um, and I don't know if you've seen it yet, but they've done a brilliant little video with their rescue horses. It's called Join the Charge Against Laminitis. And it is online and on our website. So we would really appreciate it if people kind of went along and, and viewed and shared it. Oh, definitely. What we'll do is we'll, um, we'll share that on Horse Hour for you tonight. Brilliant. Thanks, Dee. You have a lovely Thanks evening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Amy. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Next week, I'm talking to Debbie Smith, who set up a horse rider safety campaign. It's called Pass Wide and Slow, and she's taken it as far as the government. She's gone right up to the transport minister. She's not taking any prisoners at all. She wants to make our roads safer for us. Too many people have had accidents. It's happening all the time. Only last week, there were two donkeys that were killed in Bewley in the New Forest because of some idiot that was driving stupid, stupid speeds 
didn't see them, hit them and killed them. So Debbie's Great Campaign is all about making it a legal requirement to drive slower and to pass wide around the riders, which I think is a great idea. So we'll find out about Debbie, her story and how she's doing with her campaign and also what we can do to help. And I'm also going to be talking to Cameron about equine first aid. So this week we did rider first aid. Next week it's all about the horses. So don't miss out on that. Next Monday on Horse Hour hope you have a great week you've been listening to horse hour join the community on twitter mondays 8 p.m uk time 3 p.m eastern by using the hashtag horse hour follow amy at amy stevenson one and subscribe to us on acast itunes stitcher and player fm deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.